0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: How and when do we need to hold people accountable in a criminal justice context for their behavior? It's a question that comes up pretty frequently and has come up a lot recently here in Michigan. We're going to talk today with a legal expert about how these decisions get made and what the outcomes say about our culture and our society. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. To Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Before we get started with our subject, just a note we are paying a lot of attention to the developments around the news out of Monterey, California, that there is yet another mass shooting in uh, our country, and trying to put together uh, a way to discuss that with you, our our listeners. Uh, We may get to that today, a little later in the show, but uh, for sure, if we don't, we will get to it uh, later this week. This is, of course, a subject we keep coming back to over and over because it keeps happening over and over, and we don't ever seem to be able to get the kind of action out of our leaders in Washington and in other places to make it less frequent. So uh, we will again be discussing the issues about guns and gun access and gun regulation either later today or later this week. But today we want to talk a little about the idea of accountability and law and order. Now, most recently, we had Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein admonishing a fellow justice for hiring a legal clerk because of that clerk's criminal history. And it is something that caused us to really reflect on how we think about law and order and accountability and how we think about returning citizens and what they might owe uh, in the rest of their lives outside of prison. But that's not the only recent local incident that has given us a a reason to think about that. Uh, The assault by Michigan State football players against their Michigan counterparts in the tunnel after a game in Ann Arbor also caused us to think about how the legal system interacts with people when they do things that they aren't supposed to? How do you hold them accountable? How harshly do you try to hold them accountable? Also, the decision to charge the parents of the Oxford High School shooter causes us to reflect on how and when we hold people, it's like parents, responsible for things that they haven't done, but that someone close to them, someone that they are responsible for, has done. We also now have a new decision that has the rest of the nation thinking about this same issue, justice and our criminal legal system. In October of 2021, 42-year-old cinematographer Helena Hutchins was shot and killed on the set of a movie called Rust in New Mexico when actor Alec Baldwin's gun discharged while they were practicing uh, a scene. Uh, director Joel Souza was also injured in that incident. A year later, Miss Hutchins' family settled their wrongful death lawsuit against the film's producers, including Baldwin, leading some to believe that, well, that was the end, that the matter was resolved. But that all changed last week when the local Santa Fe, New Mexico prosecutor announced that they would be charging both Baldwin and 25-year-old Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the film's armorer who loaded the gun that day and was responsible for weapons on the set, with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. The man who handed Baldwin the gun, first assistant director Dave Halls, previously agreed to a plea deal to uh, negligent use of a deadly weapon. Now, If convicted, both Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed could face maximum sentences between 18 months and five years, depending on what they are convicted of. But even as this incident plays out in New Mexico, it again raises questions about how we think about justice and liability and responsibility. Think about the movies that we've had filmed here in our backyard in Michigan But even moving past that, the entire situation brings up many questions about what true justice looks like in our society. How should we determine liability for harm when we know something was accidental or certainly not intentional? When a tragedy occurs and someone loses their life, does that mean we have to hold somebody accountable for that? Or are there times when, even in the face of tragedy, it is more important just to not prosecute, not to try to assign criminal liability to everything? And, of course, how does civil liability play into all of that? We often see lawsuits, civil lawsuits, filed when bad things happen that attempt to hold people accountable in a different way, through money. That's where we wanna begin the conversation today with this very broad question of how we hold people accountable, why we do it, and how the decisions get made about who will be held accountable and who won't. To help us sort through these questions, we're joined by Jalila Jefferson Bullock. She is an associate professor at Wayne State University's Law School. Professor, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having
1: me. Yeah. So uh, let's start with this situation in New Mexico. I was really surprised, and I think lots of people were really surprised to learn last week that uh, Alec Baldwin and uh, at least one other person, uh, that they're going to face criminal charges in this case. I had kind of assumed that this was something that happened and was unfortunate and that there would be civil liability that that would be assigned by, by civil juries, but that the criminal context here was pretty far-fetched. Uh, I, I want to get your reaction uh, to, to those charges, and then have you explain what these charges are, this idea of involuntary manslaughter versus voluntary manslaughter and, and what the differences are.
0: Sure. I think that many of us, sitting around watching this unfold were quite surprised when the DA in New Mexico decided that uh, Mr. Baldwin, and I believe it's the armorer, should be charged with involuntary manslaughter. Very, very surprised by that. Um, And I think, though, given the comments that she has made surrounding this announcement, I think that she is trying, quite simply, to send a message out to larger society, and perhaps even to the movie industry, that no one is above the law, whatever that might mean. Um, and so I think that's what this is all about. You know, in our country, we punish for various reasons, and we can get into some of that as we go through our questions and hear from our callers. One theory of punishment is retribution, where you would say you punish a person because they are, they are a bad person, they've done something bad. The second is deterrence. And it's that, and, and under the deterrence theory, we would say that we punish people to prevent future crimes. And it sounds like she's thinking, if I make this statement right now, perhaps I can deter others from acting uh, maybe um, unreasonably, acting below industry standards on movie sets. So I think that's part of what she's doing. And, of course, Mr. Baldwin's celebrity, I believe, has a lot to play into it as well.
1: So in one way, this is... Um I think – and I think it's impossible to talk about things like this without talking about things like celebrity, which you mentioned, and of course race, which which plays such a profound role in our criminal justice system. But I guess one way to look at this is that um, Alec Baldwin – uh, a, uh, a white celebrity uh, is being treated uh, as though he's just an ordinary citizen. I mean, somebody who um, who might find themselves uh, in trouble for negligent behavior in a much less high profile context. And I think I've seen some some themes on social media, <clears throat> kind of uh, trying to. Uh, address that, and and in some ways, I guess that that is a reflective of uh, some form of justice, some sensibility of justice. Uh, at the same time, uh, this is a very serious charge: involuntary manslaughter. Uh, it's not the same as voluntary manslaughter. It's not the same as uh, as murder. Um, but but talk about those differences and and what kind of trouble this very famous actor could uh, could be facing if, if he's convicted of this?
0: Sure. Should this proceed and should this result in a conviction for Mr. Baldwin? I mean, this is a very, very serious charge. So unlike an intentional killing, involuntary manslaughter is going to be an unintentional killing. And for the New Mexico statute, it's one that could occur in the commission of a lawful act, which might produce death but was done in an, inla- an unlawful manner or without due caution. So when we talk about something being done without due caution, what we're really talking about is a recklessness standard. What they're saying is that Mr. Baldwin acted recklessly in the death of this woman. And let's just be clear, I mean, her death certainly is a terrible tragedy. So when we talk about something being reckless, we're talking about when a person consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk of causing death for him then, it's going to boil down to what was the standard by which he should have acted and behaved. You know, that's really what's going to happen. And I think there are many, many questions surrounding that, which is why this is such a surprising charge, because the question becomes who should have done what on that set such that this woman, um, this, this uh, horrible death did not occur.
1: And and if he is convicted of, of this, what what kind of Jail sentence, uh, do, you, do you face for for this kind of charge?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, it, so there are two separate counts. One has a weapons enhancement, which would be a mandatory minimum of five years in prison. Uh, but both carry at least up to eighteen months in prison. So, you know, prison. I don't know, um, Mr. Henderson, how much <laughs> you know you thought about prison conditions. I don't care if it's one day in prison, if it's a week, if it's eighteen months, if it's five, if it's five years. Prison conditions in our country are quite awful. and inhumane. So no matter how long it is, it's a serious crime that would have a, a, a major effect on a person's life, on a person's psyche, on a person's career, on a person's reputation.
1: I'm talking with uh, Jalila Jefferson Bullock. She's an associate professor of law at Wayne State University's law school. We're talking uh, specifically about the fact that actor Alec Baldwin has been charged with uh, involuntary involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico uh, as the result of an incident on a movie set in uh, October of 2021 that uh, ended the life um, of uh, of someone else on that set. Uh, we're also talking about the broader context here, this idea of accountability and liability, how we hold people responsible for the things that they do. Uh, would love to hear from you while we have this conversation as well. What do you think is a reasonable response to this kind of tragedy? How do we hold people accountable for the things that they do? Intentional or unintentional? There are lots of cases here recently in Michigan where I think we find ourselves really thinking about how we do that. How, we, how far do we extend the reach of liability, particularly in the criminal uh, context uh, uh, does it make sense, for instance, to charge the parents of the Oxford high school shooter uh, as as they have done in Oakland County? Uh, when somebody has committed a crime and served their time in prison and comes out, how long should they continue to have to suffer some sort of repercussions because of what they did? We recently saw uh, a some, uh, somewhat controversial uh, incident unfold at the Michigan Supreme Court where a clerk who had committed a violent felony uh, had to end up resigning uh, that position because of uh, the, the objections raised by <clears throat> another Supreme Court justice that, that other than the one who had hired uh, the clerk. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the Twitter. Go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into uh, the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, uh, Jalila, I want to I want to talk a little more uh, about this this big question that we're asking here: uh, How we hold people accountable. Uh, talk about in our society. This, this tension between um, the idea of, of crime and accountability and punishment and how we deal with all of those things.
0: Sure. You know, that's a, that's a, it's a lot to think about. So in our country, if you look at the various criminal statutes um, in, in our different states and even our federal statutes, we have, you know, what's called, um, or rather they refer to things called theories of punishment, which is why the government says that it punishes either because for retribution or either for deterrence reasons. Now, although I believe that in this specific case, this prosecutor is making a a statement about deterrence, our country really is a retributive one, where we believe if you do something bad, you should be punished. We believe that that punishment should be prison every single time. That's how the majority of us think. Why? I'm not really sure exactly how we got there. But we are in a situation in our country where we just think if you do the crime, You do the time, an eye for an eye, all that type of thing. That plays into kind of a retribution model. The problem, though, with retribution as a theory is that it requires that punishment be fair. And it's very difficult to determine what is fair in every single situation. Retribution says you should be punished to the degree of your moral blameworthiness. How bad was your action? And you only should be punished that much, not less than that, not more than that. And it's very difficult to quantify what that actually means. So we find ourselves putting people in prison with, again, deplorable conditions where they're subject to all types of uh, threats on their body, on their health, to their mental health, all of these things, and put them there in our country for long periods of time and then expect people to come back and then kind of reintegrate themselves after they've been in a situation that was that did not even lend itself to possible rehabilitation or reintegration. And that's what we do in our country. I bet you... If you poll most Americans and really talk to them about what happens in prison, they might say, hmm, I'm not so sure if that should always then be the punishment. Hmm. And that's the conversation we have to have in our country. What should punishment really look like in order that it is fair and helpful to society?
1: And and that prison experience, um, you know, which you, I think, quite accurately described as awful, no matter what the... The particular context of the of the you know particular prison that is something that we don't get uh, we don't get a real look at in in our society in in many ways and so I think it's it becomes very easy for people to talk about hey that person should go to jail that person should go to prison that person um, uh, deserves this punishment without really understanding you know, the full context, not only of, uh, you know, uh, of the loss of freedom and the other things that, that always happen with, with a prison sentence, but the particular circumstances that person um, will experience uh, while, they're, while they're on the inside.
0: Yes, it used to be, you know, if you look at kind of the history of the development of our prison system, it used to be that people were sent away to prisons to go and kind of reflect upon their misdeeds as a place you go reflect think about what you had done perhaps participate in programs that might rehabilitate you and then after a period of time you come back into society but we can all we have to do is look at the news and look at certain data to see that that is not the case anymore you know uh, many many different budgets have slash programs have less educational programs other rehabilitative programs that might help a person better themselves while they're away why would we want a system where people go away and come back worse that seems to make no sense, especially since, especially since the majority of crimes are not those that carry a punishment of a life sentence. You're going to come back out at some point. Don't we want folks to come back out? Of course, we want them to, to be better, right? We want them to be punished. We want them to be better, right? So mm-hmm. That they can come back and reintegrate into our society.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, Jalila Jefferson Bullock, uh, associate professor at Wayne State University's Law School. And we will begin to hear from you, our listeners, both on the phones and on social, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll start with Gordon in Flat Rock and Pat in Detroit. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number if you want to join them, you can also go to Twitter Hashtag Detroit Today. We will try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
2: Bringing you news that matters.
1: Stories that impact your life.
3: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is is 1019 WDET Detroit's NPR station
1: You're listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We're talking about liability and accountability, especially in the criminal justice context, not just here in the state of Michigan, but all over the country. Uh, Last week, we learned that uh, actor Alec Baldwin will face criminal charges, very serious criminal charges, uh, for an incident on a movie set uh, in which uh, a gun that uh, he was using as, as part of his role uh, was discharged and wound up killing someone else uh, on the set. Uh, is that the kind of justice that we think makes sense here in America? Does that uh, idea that uh, everything should be pursued to the fullest extent uh, make sense when we live in a world where there are lots of things that happen that are? unintentional or accidental. Uh, Also think of other instances like this, uh, local instances uh, like the mass shooting at Oxford High School and the decision by prosecutors to go after the parents of the shooter in addition uh, to the shooter does that make sense uh, in in uh, in our in our culture and in our society as always we want to hear from you on the phones and on social 313-577-1019 is the number here that's 313-577-1019 you can also go to twitter and hashtag detroit today and we'll work you into the conversation let's start today with gordon in flat rock gordon welcome to the show
2: thank you Hi. um When the first occurred, uh, I was watching MSNBC, and there was a gentleman on there who seemed like he was very knowledgeable about the protocols involved on movie sets. And what he said was that there there are three people who handle the weapon. First, the armorer is supposed to inspect it. Then a director or assistant director is supposed to inspect it. And then the actor themselves are supposed to inspect it. And it seems like that didn't occur in this instance. So I'm actually surprised he wasn't charged sooner. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of who's responsible among the many people who work on a movie set is is one of the dimensions of this, uh, uh, Gordon, and, I, and I, that detail is really uh, important. Uh, Jalila Jefferson-Bullock, uh, talk about how we suss out individual responsibility when there's clearly collective responsibility for something and that gets also to this this question of how to resolve the the, the case of this Oxford high School shooter as well the idea of charging parents uh, for their negligence in in allowing, uh, their, their child to have a gun that's used in, in a crime. This is something that that prosecutors have to have to figure out all the time. Give us a, a window into how they make those kinds of determinations.
0: Sure. Well, in this specific um, instance, with the with the Baldwin case, you know there are, as Gordon pointed out, several people who are responsible for making sure that guns are used safely on the set. And it's disputable. So while I've heard some people, some industry experts say that the actor is part of that chain of command, I've heard others say that the actor is not, that the actor is there just to just to act and follow directions and that the armorer and the assistant director is supposed to be the ones who handle and make sure that, that weapons are handled appropriately. The, the thing about that, too, is that Baldwin is also being um, treated as a producer. And so that's another piece that the DA said, well he 's a producer and an actor, and so he had a certain responsibility to ensure that certain safety procedures and standards were were followed on the set and That also was a, a place that 's a bit cloudy because we 're not one hundred percent certain what and what role is he a producer it 's possible for an actor, especially one who has such a high profile as as he does, to um, negotiate their contracts to always get a producer credit, where they really have no responsibility for what happens on the set. It's part of the the cachet of having them be on on the team. And so all of that kind of raises lots of questions about who was responsible for what, which gets, which gets back to the confusion as to how this man was charged, and maybe even why it took so long to do so, because that extreme reckless standard goes to who was the person who was reckless? Was it him? We know he pulled the trigger. He says he didn't, but it's not possible. Any of us who grew up around guns in any way, shape, or form, we know that guns don't just go off, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't really happen. You pull a trigger, you do something like that, and the gun is going to go off. We know he did that. The question is, though, whose responsibility was it to figure out uh, why were there live rounds, and whose responsibility was it to know what was in the gun and what might possibly, what the possible risks were to engage in even using that gun? But as it relates to the Oxford Oxford shooter, Mm -hmm. that's a whole different thing where parents certainly do have certain legal duties um, that as it relates to their children.
1: And and so talk about that. Uh, it, it is unusual to see parents charged when their children go off and, and, and commit crimes. What's, what's different about this particular crime?
0: Yeah, well, you're talking about a high-profile, um, you know, shooting that, that's going to be treated a lot differently. And I'm not saying, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to imply that Miss Hutchins' death is not important. It most certainly is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a terrible tragedy. But you're talking about a high profile um, shooting of, of many people. That's a very different, very different situation than what has happened on the set of Russ. Very different. And so a message certainly has to be sent that number one, the shooter is going to be held responsible. But number two, parents. Mm-hmm. You have to be, know what's happening with your kids. So to me, those are two different things. In the law, there are different re- relationships that create kind of special um, responsibilities that we would call legal duties in the law. And parents certainly have a duty to ensure that their children are acting in a certain way. If your kid goes off and decides to shoot a bunch of people as a parent, you, you, you should be held responsible for that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, really appreciate the call and the questions. Let's go next to Pat in Detroit. Pat, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh,
2: there's a couple additional issues that uh, this se- seems to be. Uh, one is, uh, you know, if, if there are sentencing guidelines and as, you know, you've spoken about in other shows, uh, in in some respects where judges don't have any discretion, uh, they are required to give out maybe sentences that are larger than would be appropriate and what what was said earlier is that this, the the sentencing guidelines was what 18 years, pardon me, 18 months to five years, and and I mean it, it at, at 18 months it might you know I, I mean it might be that in order to send a message, as was mentioned earlier, you might want to have somebody do a little bit of time, you know, even mm-hmm. 30 days for some a rich celebrity. You know, which would which go along with a, a felony conviction, would be, would send a really strong message uh, wow. mm-hmm. without the necessity of of you know. I mean, you say it was an accident, right? I mean, he should be held. He was hold, held uh, responsible financially. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the other issue, I mean, that that I, and I don't know if this is actually at play or not, is that. So he, uh, Alex Baldwin, had to pay out a bunch of money, but Alex Baldwin probably has a lot of money, and it didn't cause him probably much financial hardship. And people want to see, hey, this rich guy, he didn't pay anything for this, hmm. really. Hmm. Not like if you or me got it. Sure. You know, this is not a hard This guy ought to hurt in some other way. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit of money.
1: Yeah, Pat, that, I think that's a really important. Uh, dynamic at work here is this sense of making sure that he's punished, uh, you know, in in an appropriate and and in a way that he feels. Uh, uh, Jalila, uh, talk about again this discretion that uh, that they have in terms of how to sentence someone like Alec Baldwin, and whether you know eighteen months or whatever would send a message. I mean, you made the point earlier that you know a day or an hour in prison. Um, is is too much for most people, and, and you know, that's something we should keep in mind as well. But but the swing of between 18 months and five years is a lot. There's uh, a big difference between uh, those two sentences.
0: Right. Well, I think the first question, um, because I think part of what we're doing right now, we know he pulled the trigger, but the question is, did he do so in a manner that is reckless, such that it fits the actual statute? So the first question is, is the man uh, criminally responsible? Right, and I think that that's one that's not 100% answered because we still are, we have uh, lots of disputing ideas about who's responsible for what on the set of a movie. Again, we know he pulled the trigger, but we don't know if he did so recklessly. If he thought that everything was fine, that this perhaps they had perhaps um, uh, not real ammo in the gun, someone had checked it, then perhaps he doesn't meet that standard. That's the first question. Is he actually criminally responsible? If he is then he should definitely be treated like anybody else in the system, regardless of his celebrity, regardless of his, of his, uh, of his wealth, regardless of the amount of money he has. And I mean, I, th- I just said that regardless of his race, all of those things, mm-hmm. all of those things, right? It doesn't matter. He should be treated the same way. But the question first is, is he responsible? Another piece of this, though, another piece of this, so we're dealing with the law as it is. Another piece for perhaps, you know, reform efforts would be, should this be what the law, how the law works, too? It's another piece of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, Pat, really appreciate the, the call and the comments. Let's go to Nick in Detroit. Nick, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Stephen. Um, can you hear me?
1: Hey, how are you? Go ahead. Hi. So
2: the, uh, the, the issue I want to bring up is uh, um, one of the cardinal rules of handling firearms is to treat all weapons as if they are loaded. That's an onus put on the individual that handles any weapon. Um, I understand that maybe the law doesn't might not require that and maybe there's some limiting factor uh, in, in a movie set that's different but every law enforcement officer in, in this country is going to tell you that is one of the cardinal rules of safety you absolutely must handle all weapons treat them as if they are loaded and and you you have to take that responsibility
1: yeah yeah that, that, I mean that that is obviously the way that we you know that we think of guns and gun safety in this country i I think it's a little different um, maybe uh, because it's on a movie set and and you know the confusion that some people have including me, about how guns work on movie sets you know i didn't I don't think I believed that uh, that the the guns they use to film movies uh, are, are deadly i mean I, I didn't think they were real guns uh, and and this was an incident that that i guess tuned me into that but but this this broader context of how how we manage that is 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 really important and and jalila obviously something went wrong with with th- those kind of protocols on this on this movie set
0: sure you know again the question is still out there: Why were there live rounds in that gun? And no one can yet answer that question with any real precision. So that's one piece that's still being explored. I think your caller is right that a person, any time. I was taught that I, I am not necessarily an avid gun owner now, but I grew up in South Louisiana with a with parents from North Louisiana who uh, who who hunted regularly. And so I was taught all about gun safety and how to go out and hunt deer and duck and all of those things and how to shoot skeet and all of that. We were always taught all about gun safety and the responsibility was certainly on us who had the guns to make sure that we use them safely. But I do think the standard is different on a movie set. Actors are people who read scripts and follow the directions and do what the director says and that's really all that they do. Um, And again, I I don't understand a situation where an actor is supposed to be responsible if they had that gun for knowing what's in the gun. There's a whole chain of command uh, where where once an actor receives the gun, they believe that this gun is safe to use on set, and then they use it. So I think that's very different than what happens in everyday life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. uh, Jalila Jefferson-Bullock, it was really great to have you here Uh, to help our listeners sort through these questions about liability and accountability. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone.
1: You too. Bye-bye. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to switch subjects just a little bit. We're going to continue to look at gun violence in America, but this time in the wake of the latest mass shooting in California with Wayne State University's Stephanie Hartwell. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. 1019 WDET. Thanks for joining. The nation is once again reeling this morning as we learn about the latest mass shooting at a popular ballroom in Monterey Park, California. On Saturday night in California, a 72-year-old man shot and killed 10 people at a location that is popular with older Chinese Americans who were there celebrating the Chinese New Year. While we don't know what the motives were, the shooting again highlights concerns about the increase of gun violence here in our country. To help unpack the question and the situation, we are joined by someone who thinks a lot about these things. Stephanie Hartwell is a dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Wayne State University and dean of the professor of sociology and an adjunct professor of psychology, psychiatry. Uh, Stephanie Hartwell, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah. So uh, let's start with uh, the particulars here. Yet another mass shooting. Uh, we talk on the show a lot about uh, the, 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 the growing violence, the growing gun violence that we're enduring uh, in this country. Give me your reaction to what we saw uh, Saturday in California.
3: Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, I didn't even read the particulars because I was just disgusted. For me, it's not an if this will happen. Again, it's when and where and why. Um, you know, just some framework for it. A hundred people die a day in the United States due to gun violence. It's 25 times higher than any other high-income country. Um, it's become more of a norm, uh, and it's a bit out of control, and we've developed quite a reputation um, as a nation for gun violence and mass homicide. Yeah. So uh, my reaction wasn't one of shock. It, it was one of disgust. And, and and sadly, the community, the culture of that particular community, uh, older Asian American adults, it, it, you know, it is shocking in that community because gun violence is relatively unheard of in in China. Um, and, and 10 people were killed, but many others were injured. And we always forget about the cost of those inju- injuries
1: mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the, this, I mean, and again, we don't know the motive, but we do know the circumstances. And this is mm-hmm. uh, uh, a man who shoots into a crowd of, of Asian Americans on uh, the day that uh, that the Chinese are celebrating their new year. It seems to me that this fits then not just into the, the world of our concerns about gun violence, but also about uh, the nexus with um, you know, the ethnic hatred and resentment that is also seems to be growing in, in our country. And that's a really, really deadly com- combination.
3: Yeah. And some of my work is starting to look at, and I was just talking about this with my research group on Friday, what happens to communities broad-based um, when, when gun violence is a norm, right? It, and it, it's an, it it provides an outlet for extremists. It's sort of, an our way, American extremism, right? And this individual was an outsider. It felt like an outsider. Um, and because that technology, he had access to that particular technology, that level of anger, the access to technology, leads to motive in some sense, and then an outcome in an act. Um, and so that's the concern, is, is why, why we have this issue with guns, it's impacting communities, it's fraying communities, and where those those fault lines in communities, then there's access to guns. So it's almost chicken, you know, an egg argument, like what comes first. And I would argue that some of the issues and some of the anger that we have out in our cultural communities is the result of these hate acts. Mm hmm.
1: Mm mm-hmm. uh, Every time that we see something like this happen, I, th- I feel like uh, we go down a pretty familiar path um we start to talk a little about gun regulations and whether they could make a difference we start to talk about uh you know these these rising ethnic uh, tensions and then we kind of end up in a in the same space which is back where we started it seems where uh things are unchanged i, I want to give you a chance to talk just a little bit, bit about things that you think are possible uh, within our grasp even <clears throat> that would make these kinds of things look differently I mean this is this is a, a very free society it is free with um, with lots of things that aren't free in other countries and one of those is the access to guns uh, uh, but but I feel like that's not the only. Uh, point of leverage that we have here uh, it's one but but I, I want to have you just talk about what do we do when something like this happens if if we really were committed to the idea of uh, slowing uh, or stopping uh, these things from happening as much as they do
3: yeah I mean on the one hand you could take there's two two ends I think on the one hand you could take a public health pr- approach of education and prevention and you um, talking about those larger issues and gun violence as a public health problem and, and teach about the epidemiology of the problem and, and the disease. Um, but the other hand is using our wonderful skill sets in technology. I mean, technology created guns. It created the clips that you can kill multiple people in a short period of time. So we can, create, we can use technology in other ways to create more uh, safety around gun use. And access, too. So there's other, you know, I I talked about this the last time I was on. There's other, we have access to other um, weapons of mass destruction. I I was talking a little bit about cars. You know, When you learn to drive a car, you go through this extensive educational period. You have to have testing, and you have to go back and drive more and have more testing. And then if you mess up after you get your license, you have to go back for more education. Mm -hmm. You know, we could set up a program around education, and that's sort of the public health approach that... So gun ownership is not a right, it's a privilege, and you have to do X, Y, and Z, and if, you, if you're found to not do X, Y, and Z, then you, the consequences are, you know, this other set of activities. We just sort of end up, like, throwing our hands up and saying, we can't, we can't fix this problem because, you know, we can't control it, um, but I find that hard to believe. We have ways of regulating, we live in a free society, but we have ways of regulating everything and using our smartness. You know, we have a wonderful higher education system that does research in these areas to think our way out of the problem and really listening to experts on the problem. You know, at at Wayne, we have experts in gun violence engineers that are experts in ballistics. We have experts that work um, with the um, NRA and and other areas that, you know, look at gun violence um, and different types of programs and try to figure out what, what works. There's not one solution, but you've got to go at this hard. And you've got to understand that it's become enmeshed in our culture, and people believe it's a right to own a gun, not a privilege. But I think that's when you see the carnage and you line us up against other countries and you see how it's impacting our communities, that's simply not true. Mm. You know, one thing I heard recently is folks from other countries do not want to come to the United States to get an education because their families are worried about gun violence in the United States. Mm. I mean, what a terrible reputation to have. And it's it's shocking how other people view us, and they view us on this particular issue. And so we need to really think hard about coming up with some solutions and ideas around how to control this problem. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm talking with Stephanie Hartwell, who is the dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and a professor of sociology uh, at Wayne State University. We're talking about this latest mass shooting in our country in Monterey Park California, a 72-year-old man uh, who shoots and kills 10 people at a location that uh, is popular with older uh, Asian Americans. Uh, Saturday, when this happened, was uh, the Chinese New Year. People were out celebrating, uh, and the 72-year-old man disrupted that celebration uh, with gunfire. Uh, would love to hear from you, our listeners, during the conversation as well about your reactions to what happened and, of course, your ideas solution? Uh, how do we get away from the kind of merry-go-round of uh, incidents uh, like this in in our country, where we're just always, I think, waiting for what is the day when the next one will happen? How do we how do we change that? How do we move in a different direction? Uh, and and who's the person who steps forward? To be able to lead us in that direction, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, I, I know that Stephanie, your your a lot of your work is about the effect of um, this kind of violence on communities. Um, And you you mentioned earlier about um, how we kind of forget that it's not just the people who are killed, but also the people who are injured uh, in these incidents who who need attention and who are victims. Um, But there is also a a, a broader societal impact that you've talked about uh, before and the way in which this changes the way we the way we live our our lives Mm -hmm. normally. Uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about that as well.
3: Yeah, I I think it's a wicked problem. So we have these problems in 21st century uh, America that are called wicked problems. Climate change is one of them. Uh, Gun violence is one in my mind because of the, the, the complexity of it, but the, how the complexity is related to the way we live our lives and our norms. So, you know, when you go out in public now, you know, people think about where's the exit. You know, when my kids go to concerts, I tell them, you know, wear sneakers, get down, run. You, you, these are norms of my my mothering. Um, I think, you know, if you look at how schools are set up now and the debates around metal detectors and school safety officers, and, and it's just changed the norms of, it's such a pow- powerful technology, guns are such a powerful technology that it changes how, we live our lives, and what I've seen in neighborhoods where there's lots of gun violence and guns is there's a fear and there's a distrust, constantly being vigilant, on high alert, um, and that, that that constant vigilance and high alert it, it it impacts people's nervous systems and impacts the way they react and think, and ultimately their health because they're uptight and nervous and worried all the time because there's this unknown threat. Mm-hmm. Um, the injury piece is huge. We always talk about the, the death, but the injury piece is two times the rate of death. And being maimed by a gun, you, you can no longer go to work. You can no longer take care of your family. Um, the costs at the emergency room are high. The, you know, these types of outcomes are ones we don't often think are on the periphery of what happens with this acute gun violence, but then it becomes a chronic problem, so, you know, with guns floating around in particular neighborhoods, the neighborhoods become dysfunctional. Um, but then, if you, you know, I think of um, schools with, that have had school shootings and how those communities move forward past the school shootings. And you know, Sandy Hook was 20 years ago, I believe. Um, and that town, you know, still is struggling to recover from, from that particular incident. I think these communities never fully recover and are forever changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Uh, that's also especially true with young people and with schools uh, where we see some of these um, where we see some of these shootings and the effect on young developing minds of being part of Mm -hmm. something like this right here Mm -hmm. in in Michigan and at Oxford High School. uh, It's really interesting to watch and to talk to people in that community uh, over time about the effect on these children uh, of mm-hmm. just just having been in the building where something like this happened and seen uh, you know uh, their classmates, uh, their friends be be victims. I mean, it it, it really is. It's it, it traumatizing is, is is almost not powerful enough of a word.
3: No, it, it's horrible. It's almost like being a combat veteran in a theater of combat that you, you thought you were in a safe place. You don't trust your world anymore. The level of trauma is acute and immense. So, you know, you know people are talking quite often now about um, the pandemic and how the and adolescents more or less are having higher rates of anxiety, anxiety and depression. And that was sort of a chronic event, the pandemic. Now you're in school and you see a gunman come in and it, it's just shooting people. And the outcome of that changes your life forever. Um, And, and you you know, it's not to say that individuals aren't going to go on and do amazing, great things, but there's this constant thing in the back of one's mind, the way you see the world is forever changed. And it's just horrible, horrible trauma. And my heart goes out to those uh, students in Oxford and any students in any school districts You know where this has happened. When you read about Parkland, when you read about the other places that there's school shootings, it's just, it's. It's just terrible.
1: Yeah, and and the call I think to us uh, to to fix that is even more urgent. I mean, what happened in Monterey Park, of course, is is terribly, terribly urgent. But but even more urgent is this idea that that young people start off their young lives really with with this kind of tragedy to have to cope with.
3: Yeah, and it, and it goes back, in, and again, to access to guns and responsible gun ownership. It's not a, a right, it's a privilege, And you know, to have a weapon of mass destruction in, in one's home and to be able to own it. I think that we need to think a lot about gun locks, I think we need to think about gun sales, I think we need to think about gun production um, and the safety features on guns. I think we need to think about licensing um, and responsible ownership uh, and... And also waiting periods for sales, you know, all the things that have already been talked about. And and then we seem to double down when there's another incident. Well, we're going to go back to the drawing board and talk about these things. But folks really need to think about the larger term. This is going to start to affect the bottom line of the country financially because it is such a it's such a wide scale issue. Um, And I think that folks aren't thinking about, yeah, 100 people die a day. Um, Many of those, about 60% of those are suicides, but 40% is a pretty significant number of homicides. Yeah, but then 200 people twice that are injured, you know? And so, and then we've, on top of that, we have these massive, massive events, you know, where 10 people are killed at once. This is crazy that we're even talking about this in a world that we believe so much in freedom. Um, And and so really what we're living in is a highly, we're a highly vigilant society where we're all, scared all the time of being out in public. And that, to me, is incredibly concerning. And like I said, when I do a deep dive into some neighborhoods that I do my work, it it really impacts the the safety and the feelings in those neighborhoods.
1: Stephanie Hartwell, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. It's
1: going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to take a look at what it means to be a Detroiter. Who exactly is a Detroiter and why do we care so much about that question? This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.